0: First Peter chapter 4. Last week, when we were together, we began to look at what the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Peter to write in our text in First Peter chapter four, verses seven through 11, a text that I am not eager to leave today. I want us to come back to that text today, and we'll come back in the next uh, few weeks as well to visit it again. but it is in this section. Where generally, the Apostle Peter is discussing the issue of Christian living. Christian living. Now, last week, I'm just going to jump right into this. Last week, we saw three important aspects of Christian living. This text essentially, if I just provide the outline for you, this, says, this text essentially is giving us three important aspects of Christian living in the midst of a world that is largely filled with antagonism uh, toward Christians, but not just antagonism toward Christians, but also opposition to God. Now, those three aspects are laid out for us in verses 7 through 11. There is in verse 7 what we might call an incentive or a motive for Christian living. And what he says is basically this the end of all things is at hand. We, we talked last week, what is the incentive? What is the motivation for Christian living? It is this, the end is real and the end is near. It, there's a real end and there is a near end. And then the, the majority of this text, verses 7 through 11, is made up of instructions to Christian living, not just incentive for, but instructions to or even even toward Christian living in three main areas, praying loving, and serving, okay? And then he closes out the text with what we might call the intention of Christian living, and that's in verse 11. That is the eternal glory of Christ and the eternal dominion of Christ. Now, what I would like to do today is to take a deeper dive into this text and take some time for developing our thoughts and making some direct applications specifically for us, our church family, Uh, regarding these issues or the issue of the instructions that Peter gives us for Christian living. I want to read the text and then kind of jump into it. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll make the text live in our hearts, that you, by a work of your Holy Spirit, would sovereignly apply truth to our hearts, to our minds, redirect our attention, our affection, our action, in a way that would be obedient to you. Bless your church today, I pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. There are three major areas that I said that we find Peter addressing here that have to do with the issue of Christian living. The first, we might say the first has to do primarily with the Christian mind in relationship to our praying, that is, in relationship to our communion with, our communication to God. He addresses the issue of the Christian mind, living It grows out of the seedbed of the mind. It doesn't just happen by chance. Living or practice or action is rooted in Christian thought, the Christian mind. The second has to do, if the first has to do with the Christian mind in relation to our praying, the second would then have to do with the Christian heart in relation to our loving. And then the third would have to do with, we might say, the Christian body in relationship to our serving. But these three areas, praying... Um, loving and serving. Now, what's interesting to me about this text is, and, and really all through the, the book of First Peter, if you know anything about the life of Peter, you will see some of his experiences shining through in what, he's, in what he says here. It's interesting to me that, that it seems that each one of these areas of Christian living somehow are found in Peter's life experience. In other words, the things that Peter highlights have been emphasized as tremendously important as a follower of Jesus Christ, simply because of the experience of of Peter. Take, for instance, the importance he lays just in this first area of praying. That was played out in his life. Remember the night that Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter was much more given to sleep than he was to pray, he learned this lesson of being sober-minded and, and of being self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. He learned that lesson very practically, if not painfully. When it comes to the issue of Christian love, that was also a theme, a constant theme in the life and teaching of, of Jesus. It must have been branded on the hearts of the disciples. Peter, John, we read of this constant emphasis on the issue of love or Christian love one for another. And we took a bit of time last week developing the issue of praying. And this week, I would like for us to consider what Peter has to say about the love of the Christian. We could call this sermon Christian living or we could just call it Christian loving. Christian loving. Love, to love one another, or this, this, this issue of love, is a command. This is a command to the Christian for the Christian life. I mentioned to you last week what William Hendrickson said about this issue of this command of love. He said, love is capable of being commanded because it is not primarily an emotion, but a decision of the will leading to action. He is commanding love. He's not just telling you to get an ooshy gushy feeling, to get sort of butterflies in the stomach, but he's giving this direct action to which he then supplies four characteristics of this kind of love. He says, above all, that is to say, love is first of all to be first. Love is of primary importance. He dealt with the vertical relationship, namely our communion with, communication to God, and now he's dealing with the horizontal relationship in terms of the way that we relate to one another. This is the most important thing in light of the reality of and nearness of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the end of all things love must be of primary importance this is love is to be first it is to be given priority but not only that love is to be fervent he says have a fervent love for one another keep loving one another earnestly there's not only the priority but the fervency of love it means to to love stretchingly christian love goes the the extra mile in the, in the end days it is, it is an intense thing. It is, it is stretching. It, it requires sacrifice. One pastor said this, that is to say, loving the unlovely, the unlovable, loving your enemies, loving those who have not treated you kindly, loving when it doesn't seem rational, it doesn't seem reasonable, loving to the point of sacrifice that it costs you something, costs you much, maybe costs you Everything. The kind of love that requires all your spiritual muscle stretching to love the unlovable in spite of insult, injury, rejection, being treated unkindly, ungraciously, in spite of being treated with hostility, being misjudged, mistreated, or misrepresented. That's the fervent love. But what I want to focus on this morning is the third characteristic of love, and that is that this love is to be forgiving we'll maybe look later at this love that's before everyone which is hospitable but but this love that is to be forgiving of all of the aspects of love it seems that God mentions this one the most the aspect of forgiveness when you have love for one another you don't use the inevitable faults and offenses of one another as an open door for bitterness for for hatred For hurt. Forgiveness is mentioned 125 times in the Bible. There are 125 direct references to forgiveness in the Bible. And what I would like to do this morning is just take some time to consider what the Bible has to say about the issue of loving forgiveness. Loving forgiveness. I can think, when it comes to the Apostle Peter and this issue of forgiveness... I can think of one lesson, one instance that really rises to the top. When I I think about Peter's life and the lessons that he's learned, the instances of his life from the Lord Jesus Christ, one instance rises to the top on this issue of Christian forgiveness. You probably, if, if you're a Christian for any length of time, you probably are thinking about that as well. Remember when Peter said, how many times should I what? Forgive. Should I forgive someone what? Seven times, and Jesus said to him, what? No, you should forgive 70 times seven. I want you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And we're going to use this as as an example, as, as a lesson for us on this issue of loving forgiveness or Christian loving or however you want to call it. Luke chapter 17 Verses 1 through 10. I'll give you a bit of the context. And my hope is that we will be understanding where forgiveness originates. What is the foundation? What is the root of Christian forgiveness? So that we can put it into practice even more obediently in these last days. If we believe that these are the last days. If we believe that the end of all things is at hand. One of the first priorities we have to deal with as a church is going to be in the issue of forgiving one another. And I think this text is going to help us with that. Now, let me just give you a bit of background. In this text, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is directing his attention to, he's directing his words to the disciples. But have you ever been in an instance where you were speaking to someone directly, but you were really hoping that someone else was listening? Because while you want to teach them, you also hope they get the point. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, had been following Jesus, and they didn't like him at all. They did not like Jesus at all. And one of the things that they hated about Jesus was the fact that, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, that he was spending time with sinners and tax collectors, He saw the sinners and tax collectors drawing near to him, and they didn't like it. These sinners and tax collectors, they were the outcasts of society. They were the scum of the earth in the minds of the religious elite. And here's Jesus welcoming them with open arms. Luke 15, 2, he welcomes them, and, and he receives sinners, and he eats with them. So the scribes and the Pharisees are still in earshot of Jesus and his disciples by the time we get to Luke 17. But he wants to teach his disciples something about living as part of his family, all the while hoping that they hear it and are cut to the heart as well. He uses the Pharisees to teach them a lesson. And notice how he begins, verse 1 of chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now look in verse 1. The word temptations there is, is from the Greek word from which we get our word scandal. It means trap, stumbling block. In other words, Jesus says that these leaders, these religious leaders, in their pride... We're setting traps or snares or stumbling blocks for these little ones. Little ones. Jesus uh, Jesus uses it in Matthew 18.6. The term little ones is a reference to believers. But I think here in Luke 17, these little ones, I think he's talking about the sinners and the tax collectors who were drawing near to him. They were beginning to believe in Jesus, and the scribes and Pharisees wanted to count them out. They wanted to hinder them from coming to Jesus. So the Lord Jesus tells us that such things, such temptations, such offenses are inevitable. In other words, people will always try to put stumbling blocks in the way of others. In the way of others who are getting close to Christ, and that's the case. For centuries, think about it. Parents have dissuaded their children from following Christ. Spouses have attempted to hinder one another from following Christ. Friends have discouraged other friends when it came to following Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that this kind of thing is not just inevitable. He says this thing is also inexcusable. It would be better for them if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. In other words... When someone attempts to put a stumbling block before someone else who wants to follow Christ, God does not look on that kind of thing lightly. He considers that to be a serious issue. And it will not pass his judgment. He says this. He says, it would be better for this kind of person to drown in the sea. That's to say, rather than allowing him to keep storing up wrath and storing up judgment against himself, it will be better for him if the worst imaginable death were his. Now, to the Jews, being drowned was about as awful and terrible a death as as could be conceived by man. It was to be reserved for the lowest of the low. And if this millstone this large grinding stone that was rotated by a donkey or an ox to crush grain, this millstone had a large hole in the middle of its center. If a man's head were in the middle of that giant millstone and he were thrown into the sea, he would immediately plunge headfirst down into the depths of the sea with no hope and with no help of rescue. That's a pretty vivid picture and a pretty awful one at that. And the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples something. He's teaching them something. They heard, think about this, they heard all of the arguing of the Pharisees. They heard the grumbling. They heard the mocking of the Pharisees. And Jesus says that what those Pharisees were doing, what those religious elitists were doing, is about as despicable in God's eyes as anything that we could imagine. Is that the lesson? Is that all that Jesus is saying? Well, that's a terrible, terrible thing what they're doing. Well, partially. We we ought to take what the Pharisees were doing seriously, but there's more to it. And I know there's more to it because the Holy Spirit underlines it for us. He puts it in bold print for us. It's italicized, underlined, large, bold print letters. How does He call our attention to this? He has a specific lesson for you and me in verse 17, uh, verse 3 of chapter 17. Look what it is. Pay attention to yourselves. He's not just talking about what happened with the Pharisees and the religious elite. He said, I'm talking to you. This has application for you. Lend me your ears. Pay attention to yourself. This is as emphatic as it could be. Take this into consideration, Jesus says. Watch out for yourselves. Something that's very important for us and he gives us a very serious, very sobering warning, something that we need to be aware of. You and I have got to be aware of leading people into sin. That that is despicable to God. And we've got to beware. But there's something more specific that the Lord Jesus would want to drill down on for for His children. You see, not long before this instance here in Luke 17... The disciples were having a bit of a dispute among themselves. Sometimes I think we think of the disciples and we think of, these, this, bunch of group, this group of people walking around with their hands folded in a long robe and a halo over their head, just absolute hol- holiness. It was anything but that. Sort of very difficult group. I'll explain to, to you about that a little bit more later. They were having a dispute among themselves. And what happens when you have a dispute among a group of people? Well, a couple things happen. First of all, people begin to take sides, right? Not only do people begin to take sides, but as arguments go, that tends to reveal a bit about the person's heart. Things get a little bit hot. People get hot under the collar, Forgiveness was, would certainly be in order. Now the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, would teach that to forgive someone three times was the epitome of perfection. But Jesus said, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you Must forgive him. Jesus brings up the subject of forgiveness. Now, here's my question What's the connection between verses 1 and 2 and then the next eight verses? The scribes, the Pharisees were guilty of trying to ensnare people, to trap them, to keep them from following Christ. And God says, I take that very, very seriously. So, what happens when a brother in Christ decides not to forgive another brother in Christ? What happens when someone decides to hold a grudge against another? The question is, does God take that any less seriously? Jesus said in Matthew 18, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. Who is in heaven? Does God take it seriously when brothers and sisters in Christ would choose to not forgive one another? Luke 17 addresses that subject, at least verses 1 through 10. And what I want to do this morning is is in the hope of helping us to understand where forgiveness originates so that we can practice it more faithfully. I want to call out to you and here in Luke 17, point out to you there are three important statements regarding forgiveness and the Christian. What are the statements? Number one, forgiveness is a necessary possibility. It's in the realm of possibility that you and I would have to forgive one another within our Christian life. Second, forgiveness is a natural product of saving faith. And third... Forgiveness is a normal part of the Christian life. At least those three things come out in this this text. Let me read all of it again to you, verses 1 through 10. And then we'll get moving. Wow. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing and, or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So let's think about these statements. First of all, the statement that forgiveness is a necessary possibility in the Christian life. How now I paint it in a, in a context for you. You have a group of, of disciples, a group of followers of Jesus Christ. Now there are different men there, but I want to call out two. And see what you know about two of these men. There was one whose name was Levi or Matthew. What was Matthew known as? A tax collector. He was a tax collector. He he was one who collected taxes for the hated Roman occupiers. He was not one who was well loved by, you know, the, the normal people. Together, in that group of people that, whom Jesus had called out, there was not only Matthew, the tax collector, but there was also another one. He was called Simon, and he was called the zealot. Zealot. The patriot. The one who was going to stand up for Israel and her rights. The one who was going to, 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 to rid the, the occupied land, to rid the occupiers, to get rid of the Roman rule. Isn't it interesting that Jesus called both a tax collector and a zealot to himself? What do you think those meals were like? (laughs) You sit down there, you sit down here, and don't talk. I mean, could you, what would it be like were there to be I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, a Republican and a Democrat in the same church. Now, I hope that you get your politics right, and if you need to get them right, come to me and I'll sort them out for you. But, but kind of that dynamic. My, my point is, it was certainly beyond possible, it was po- plausible, it was probable That there would come a time where there would have to be some issue of forgiveness within the disciples. Isn't it possible that within the church, within the body of Christ, I mean, we're so different in so many ways that isn't it possible that there would be need for forgiveness in one another? Our Lord describes a situation that occurs over and over again in the life of the Christian. One of your brothers sins against you. That is to say, he does something, he says something that is obviously hindering their relationship with God and to you. This kind of thing happens in the church all the time. In this passage, the emphasis is not so much on the process as it is on the end result. You're familiar with the process, Matthew chapter 18. But in this case, the Lord says that this person sins against you and somehow you rebuke him for it. Now, let me just say this, not every sin needs rebuking. We don't have to rebuke every person for every time we see them sin. That's maybe for another time. But suppose he repents, and what do you do? Well, Jesus said you forgive him, no questions asked. You be willing and ready to forgive. That's the lesson that he is essentially giving us here. You should know... That Christian forgiveness is a necessary possibility. You should always be ready and willing to forgive your brother or sister in Christ. Now before I get very far, it would be good to try to define forgiveness. The world, Mark Twain defined forgiveness this way as the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. That sounds nice, but I have no idea what it means. To forgive, I'll give this definition, is to decide to change your attitude towards someone who has wronged you. To forgive is to decide to change your attitude towards someone who has wronged you. Forgiveness is a decision. It is the decision to overlook or rather pardon someone's sin against you. That means you refuse to hold them guilty. You release them from the grudge, from hard feelings, from animosity, From bitterness, from antagonism, from ill will, from dissatisfaction. It is the part of love that covers or that hides a sin and chooses to remember it no more. You don't hold to some grudge because God takes that very seriously. That will be the the, the essential message. Don't hold a grudge because God takes that very seriously. The, The child of God that you're holding a grudge against is in fact a child of God. Now... The kind of sin that is referred to in Luke 17 and Matthew 18 is the regular unbroken pattern of sin in someone's life who's calling themselves a believer. It is is sin that becomes a course of action in their lives. That's why I said not every sin needs rebuking. Not all sins are at that level. We don't always need to be going around looking for faults in people. Someone might say, well, what if this person does not for, repent? Do I have to forgive him? Well, if by asking the question, you mean, do I get to keep holding a grudge? The answer is, you have to forgive him. That's the principle of Scripture. Not just your brother, but anyone, even before you pray. I mean, Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 11 makes that really clear. There's been many questions about, questions about this, this issue of forgiveness in the Christian life, and there are basically two schools of thought. There's the school of thought that says, forgive only when it's being asked for, camp. And then there's the camp that says, just forgive even when it's not asked for. Now I thought about this and tried to study the scriptures, and I've come to the conclusion that the pervading attitude of our heart is to be a forbearing forgiveness toward everyone, especially toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. There must be a recognition of the greatness of the forgiveness that I have in Christ, which leads me to forgive the relatively small transgressions of others against me. This is to be pattering our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ, who after all, when he was being nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them. So there is never room for a Christian to hold a grudge. This is what I'll call unconditional forgiveness. There should be many, many more times that we forgive than when we're simply asked for it. We're to be eager to forgive because we have been forgiven so much so freely. After all, Peter tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. But in the case of a prolonged directional kind of sin, when a believer confronts another professing believer, there's a deeper issue which has to be dealt with, and you deal with that according to the steps laid out in Matthew 18. But in general, there's always to be this willing, humble, tender-hearted attitude in our hearts. A willing, humble, tender-hearted attitude in our hearts. There's a willingness... To sacrifice your desire to hurt someone else when they hurt you. Now of course, conditionally, when someone repents, there is this glad-hearted, spoken, granted forgiveness. There is to be a clean slate, no strings attached. The founder of the American Red Cross, Clara Barton, a friend said to her one time, reminded her of something that was especially cruel that was done to her years before, but Clara Barton said, well, when they asked him, they said, don't you remember when that happened? And she said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. That's the picture of this, this Christian forgiveness. Forgiveness is a, a necessary possibility. It might cross the realm into the realm of possibility that at some point or another, you may have to forgive another brother or sister in Christ who has somehow Sinned against you, harmed you, offended you, whatever it might be. And Jesus said, And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, it's simply, you must forgive him. That's astounding. And it was a, it's as astounding to us as it was to the disciples upon hearing it because they said, Wow, increase our faith. There's no way I can do that. Which leads us to the second statement. Not only is, is forgiveness a necessary possibility, but forgiveness is a natural product of saving faith. When the disciples Heard this teaching, they were immediately confronted with the difficulty of it. The work of not only pardoning your brother repeatedly, but welcoming him into a relationship that is completely restored and reconciled. And they felt absolutely inadequate for that. How is it possible that I can do something like that? Increase our faith. The the, the word that he uses is the word from which we get our word prosthetic. Add something else. We, we need something extra. We need something more. He's just saying, it's as if they're saying, if that's the standard, then we certainly need something more. This is way beyond, this is way above the call of duty. This is, this is for super saints. It's not for me. Super saints can live that way. Super saints can love that way. Super saints can forgive that way, but I can't. I mean, think about the disciples. They're in their mind thinking, we're just arguing, and we're just getting all hot under the collar about these things. No way can I do that. And what does Jesus answer? He doesn't say, well, let me give you a 12-step program. Let me... Add something more to you. Let me, let me zap you, and you'll be able to get this. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Why does he say that? Well, if I have the chronology right, it seems that Jesus had already taught them about this, and we know that from Matthew 17, verses 20 and 21. The point that Christ is making here is that what we need in order to be able to react in the way that he describes, what do we need? Faith. Faith. It could take this, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, or if you had faith that grows like a mustard seed, I, I, I like the first rendering better. Because I think that the disciples thought that they needed something in addition to their faith in order to respond the way that Christ says to respond. They needed something extra to be able to respond with with a heart of forgiveness and tenderheartedness toward one another. And Jesus said, no, what you need is faith. You don't need to grin and bear it. You don't need to just cowboy up. What you need is faith. You think you could never do what he says here? You think you could never have this, this general heart tenderness toward another? Jesus said, what you need is faith. John MacArthur said, the Lord is not saying do pointless things. He's, he's not saying do crowd-pleasing tick tricks. He's saying, you don't think you can live a godly life. You don't think you can always speak the truth correctly. You don't think you can set a pure example so that no one stumbles. You're not sure you can live such a mercifully, forgiving life. You're not sure that you can do that. And I'm telling you, if you will continue to trust me, my power through you will accomplish all of that. That's what he is saying. What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word. It's taking God at his word. Hebrews 11.1. I think John 15 is maybe the best place to go. Where Jesus says in verses five through eight, abide in me. If if my word abides in you, stay close to Christ, stay close to his word. Take him at his word. You don't need something extraordinary to get to this level of forgiveness, you don't have to be some level, super level saint. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay close to Christ. The point is this. Forgiveness is a natural, or I'll even say this way, is a supernatural product of saving faith. You don't have to be a super saint to be a loving Christian who genuinely forgives others. Just stay close to Christ. See, what we often expect in the Christian life is to be zapped, to go from zero to hero or whatever it is, to, 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 to go from nothing to having all. But what God says is, is you stay close to Christ and he step by step transforms you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ that you become more and more like him. And one of the ways that that is, is demonstrated is in this issue of forgiveness with one another even when there are potentialities for rubs and difficulties that we experience one with another. Forgiveness is a natural product of of faith. You stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and by staying close to Him, that means you you stay close to His Word. Take His Word. You know, we sang that song when we were kids, and, and I know that it's maybe cliche, but it is true. Read your Bible and pray every day, and you'll grow, you'll grow, you'll grow. Forgiveness is a, is a necessary possibility. And, and God takes it very seriously when we hold on to, to grudges, and we hold on to bitternesses, and when we, when we might use those opportun- as opportunities to, to, l- to lash out, to, to hurt someone else hold on to grudges or bitterness. God takes it very seriously. Forgiveness is a natural product of saving faith. It's, you don't need something extra. Get close to Jesus. But then let me finish by saying this. The forgiveness is a normal part of the Christian life. Verses 7 through 10. He has this seemingly out of place thing where he says if you have a servant you're out pl- uh, uh, who's out plowing your field, and is that servant not going to come back and make you dinner? Well, yeah, that's what he's going to do. And, and it's not something amazing. Why? Because he's just doing what he's supposed to do. It's not as if, wow, I for, imagine Matthew saying about Simon, I, I forgave him, Lord. And Jesus said, okay. So what? That's just baseline Christian living. What, what Peter is calling us to do is to live the Christian life in 1 Peter chapter 4. And he's not saying these are things that are extraordinary. These things are just normal part of the Christian life in these last days. It's baseline for the Christian living. It's a normal part. It's not anything extraordinary. It should be the, the regular practice of believers to forgive. And you say, well, Joe, w- why is this important for us? Sometimes you can ask the question, oh, man, there must be a problem here at Calvary. That's why Joe's teaching on this. Maybe, maybe he's seen you know, uh, some area of, of unforgiveness, uh, some area of weakness. Is Joe grinding an ax? Well, no. I'm not. And by God's grace, I, I have seen, especially in this last week, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I have experienced the care and concern and compassion of the church family in ways that have just been wonderful for us. And, and I don't see any areas, any outside, maybe, maybe I need to be, you know, have my ear more to the ground, but I don't see any outstanding areas of lack of forgiveness. I'm not going to call somebody up, you know, and say, you got this issue, let's deal with it right now. Other than Josh, I'll call Josh up right now. No. Uh, But the reality is we're living in the last days. The end of all things is at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ is, is at the door. I don't know of any blatant unforgiveness, but I've been around long enough to know that there could be some latent unforgiveness in our midst. The general attitude of of holding one another at arm's length. Not really getting involved in each other's lives. Just keeping to yourself so that you can avoid the possibility of being involved in someone else's life. Because when you are involved in someone else's life, that most probably means you'll have to extend some kind of and receive some kind of forgiveness. And that's the kind of latent unforgiveness that I'm, I'm concerned with mostly. That we, because we know that there is a possibility of getting involved in each other's lives, that it might mean that we have to forgive, and that's hard. We just kind of sit in our little box, we come to church, we sit in our little chair, we get up and we go into our little car and go to our little home and not have any opportunity for interaction one with another. And I'm saying we, we need to watch out for that. We need to watch out for that. Let's give opportunity in our lives to be involved in each other's lives, to, to learn about one another, to love one another, to serve one another in such a way, yeah, that might open up and, and, and present opportunity and need for forgiveness. And that, I'm saying this, that is the exact way that we see our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated it's not see who you can avoid that that make that demonstrates that you know the lord jesus christ it's seeing who we can get involved in our lives and that really sets us up for next week when when paul when peter talks about the issue of hospitality opening your heart and your home to one another There are lots of reasons for us to forgive one another and to be tender-hearted toward one another. I could tell you that, you know, you're never more like Christ than when you're forgiving someone. I could tell you that Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, is looking for that open door to get in and disrupt the church, and, and that open door most often is unforgiveness. I could tell you in Matthew chapter 5 that, that when you have a heart of bitterness or even this latent unforgiveness, that it makes you unfit for worship. I could remind you that God has forgiven you so much more than you've ever forgiven each other. I could remind you that unforgiveness will bring the discipline of God. I could remind you that God says, if you don't forgive, this is troubling, isn't it? If you don't forgive, what does He say? I'm not going to forgive you. It's possible that there is a temporal sense in which you remain unforgiven. In other words, you may be forgiven in an eternal, justified sense, but, but in a temporal sense, you're not really enjoying that forgiveness that you have in Christ. You're not really living in that. One man said, I think that there are Christian people who have had their sins forgiven on an eternal sense, but on a temporal sense, they're not enjoying the rich fellowship that they should with God And they're undergoing discipline from him because they do not forgive others. They carry around bitterness. I think the emptiness in people's lives, even those who are Christians, uh, brings depression, dullness, lack of joy. And it's often due to withheld blessing, withheld forgiveness, guilt, and chastening from God. So I suppose what we could do today is think more carefully about direct points of application. The end of all things is at hand. Are you involved enough in the lives of others that you've experienced the need to genuinely forgive, tenderly forgive another such that you're not holding on to grudges or bitterness or heartache or heartbreak? Have you, have you exemplified the forgiveness that you've received from the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of others? Has it been played out? And I'm speaking specifically within the local church but there are uh, you a know, multitude number of ways that we could experience that and, and play that out. But I'm speaking specifically here. It's The local church is an amazing creation of God. Who else would come up with the idea of bringing a bunch of people who are so different together with this great cause of proclaiming the excellencies of him, his excellencies, in a world that's filled with lesser gods? I'll tell you this. When the world looks on Christians and sees this tender-hearted freedom from bitterness, sort of general approach to one another, that tells us something about the God we serve, doesn't it? Their God must be really something because they don't hold on to that grudge. Each of you have a different way that you're going to apply this. Each of you do. Um, some of you need to partake of the forgiveness of God in Christ for the very first time. You've never come to to truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him to to be the forgiveness of your sin. God is a God who willingly has made redemption for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you willingly receive that in Christ? Others of you have a particular issue with a, a friend a husband a wife a brother a sister you've you've come in here today holding bitterness you've given someone the silent treatment uh, you've been holding someone else at arms length the end of all things is at hand what kind of application should we draw from that let's pray